Morning, everybody. Good morning. Good to see all of you here. Good to be gathered together and worship our Lord together. Um, thanks to all of you who are joining us online as well. Um, today, this is the second lesson um, of two. Uh, hat tip to Mark Greco, who taught me to teach in two parts as uh, he's been leading our men's prayer sessions in two parts of late. Uh, so this is the second of two lessons where we're exploring biblically uh, how to be led by the Spirit. Um, and in the last lesson, in the first lesson, we acknowledged that there is a need for us to test the spirits. Um, not every spirit is from God. Uh, therefore, we need to be careful. There are deceitful spirits, the Bible tells us, in this world and we can't assume that what is always leading us is the Holy Spirit. We need to be careful about that and test each spirit. Uh, we looked at how this phrase, led by the Spirit, is used in Scripture. Twice uh, in reference to Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit. And then twice in reference to disciples in, in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. And we noted in the last lesson um, that the way to determine whether someone is led by the Spirit is by the fruit that we produce. That to be spirit-led, those who are following the Spirit's lead are the ones who have their minds set on the Spirit uh, and what the Spirit desires. They're putting to death the deeds of the flesh and they produce the Spirit's fruit. And what we learned was that being led by the Spirit has more to do with how you live than where you live, has more to do with how you work than where you work or which job you take, it has more to do with uh, how you act, with what, whether you're single or married, than, than, than whether you choose to be single or married, or, how, or which person you may choose to be married to. And in this lesson today, uh, I promised um, that, God willing, we would take some time to explore how to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in decision-making. Um, and, and this is where it gets a little tough, because sometimes, you know, what the Spirit uh, where the Spirit is leading is not explicitly revealed in Scripture. And that's where I think we get, uh, we get um, into trouble sometimes. Oftentimes, when we ask uh, how to be led by the Spirit, what we really want to know is, where should I live? Which job should I take? Should I stay single or should I get married? And if I get married, who should I marry? Who's the one out there that the Spirit is leading me to marry? Um, and sometimes we even struggle with more uh, simple daily decisions. Where is the spirit? Where does the spirit? Uh, where is the spirit leading me to be today? Or what does the spirit want me to be doing? Now I said in the last lesson. I just want to reemphasize this. Based on the text that we just read in Second Timothy three verses fourteen through seventeen, Paul makes clear here to this young servant, this young minister, Timothy. He says. You need to continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and from and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And I just want you to notice there what Paul is saying is that the way Timothy has become wise and the way that he is able to become wise is by examining the holy scriptures that he's been taught from his youth up. He goes on to say that all scripture is God-breathed, or more literally, the word is spirit, spirited, that comes from God's spirit. 
And it's profitable. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correction and training in righteousness. So that, the, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peter says something similar in 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. He said, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, here's what I want you to see as we get going here today. If we believe the apostles and their prophets really spoke from God, then we must understand, we should be willing to accept that they said that scripture is sufficient to, help, to teach us how to make decisions. Scripture is sufficient to give us everything we need to be complete in Christ Jesus. Scripture is sufficient to, to, to give us everything we need to be thoroughly equipped to do God's work in this world. Peter said we need, everything we need for a godly life comes through the knowledge of him. And so this is important because many times when we think about being led by the Spirit, many times there's very little attempt to, to, to build a biblical approach to this, this subject. Often we focus more on testimonials or on experiences. Uh, it's let me tell you what happened to me or let me tell you what my cousin experienced or let me tell you what this pastor that I saw on YouTube said about what he had gone through or what he had experienced. And sometimes our beliefs end up being more based upon experiences than they are on the Word of God. So let me just suggest this. When we look at this, and I gave this exhortation in the last lesson, when we look at this question, when we explore this question, don't immediately turn to your experience. First, turn to Scripture. Experience is not the best way to build your theology because, again, there are deceitful spirits in this world, and we have to test those spirits to see whether they are really from God. Uh, one of the reasons, though, why I think uh, some people think that the Bible, uh, one, one of the reasons why some people don't really turn to Scripture when it comes to the area of decision making is that I think many people think that the Bible only speaks about decision making with the big items, like which job should you take? Yeah, there might be some help in there for that one. Or who you're going to marry? Yeah, there might be some help in there for that one. And we underestimate how much the Bible has to teach us about decision-making on every single page. And I just want you to think about this. It's much easier um, to make this, this daily decisions that follow the Spirit's lead if we learn to make those decisions following the Spirit's lead in the small things. It's going to be much easier for me to make decisions that follow the Spirit's lead in all of the big-ticket items if I have trained my mind to follow the Spirit's lead in all of the, the, the small, maybe what may appear to me, to be small decisions that I make on a daily basis. As I said earlier, most often when we talk about wanting to know what God's will is or wanting to know where the Spirit is leading, we want to know what, what, what God's will is about who I should marry or whether to go back to school or what job to take or where I should live, etc., etc. And if you only seek God's will, if you only seek to follow the Spirit's lead in the big decisions, you're going to struggle with decision making. The Bible has something to say about decision making on practically every page. And I'll just give another reason here why I think we do this. Um, one, another reason why we don't turn to the scriptures to help us is that many of us assume that there is additional revelation available, whether that's in the form of visions, dreams, feelings, circumstances, hunches, etc. And the danger here is 
that many times people swear that God told them to do certain things that actually end up violating principles or commands in God's word. If I had a nickel for every, every time somebody told me, God told me to do this, and it was directly violating something in God's scripture, I'd be a rich man. This is, this is a danger, and, and, and I need to ask myself this question. Is the scripture sufficient for me or not? Do I really believe that I need an updated, personalized revelation from God every day in order to do his will? Or is God's word adequate to equip me for every good work in Christ Jesus? Sometimes we get a little sloppy in the way that we talk. God led me to do this, or God is speaking to me, or God is telling me these things. And I'll just say, I don't think those, th those phrases are always wrong to say uh, with some clarification. But in some places, those kinds of phrases have been used to justify about every kind of foolishness in this world. I got a quote for you here, and I want to see if you can guess who said it. All right, here's the quote. I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the almighty creator. Anybody know where that quote comes from? That's Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf. He wrote it. Simple principle here is just because I believe that this is the will of God, just because I believe that the Spirit is leading me in this direction, just because I feel like the Spirit may be leading me in a certain way, doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean it's actually from God. So don't go first to, I saw this pastor who was saying this, or, 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 or um, my brother or my cousin had this experience, or I just had this feeling, or I just had this hunch, or I just felt this chill down my spine, so I know it was the Spirit leading me in this direction. Think about the scriptures and think about what the Bible says, even if it goes against your experience. Um, I'll give you a couple more examples here that I think just kind of highlight why this can be, why this is so important. Um, one is, uh, I heard about a preacher who had uh, four young men approach him, and uh, they said that the Spirit had showed them the woman that they were to marry. These four young men said, hey, this, they came to the preacher separately and said, hey, the Spirit has showed me which woman I should marry. And that was not a problem until he heard them a little further and realized that they were all talking about the same woman. <laughs> Let me ask you, was God leading all four of these men to marry that same woman. You don't have to know them, you don't have to pray about it to know that at least three of those guys were wrong. Maybe all four, right? A man I met soon after I uh, moved to New York City told me that God had called him to come to New York City to preach. And the way the man told the story, it was almost like God had called him on the phone and said, hey, I want you to go to New York City and preach. And he was so convinced that God had spoken to him and called him to New York City, that he didn't slow up long enough for a few things like asking the pastors of his church whether or not they believed he, God was calling him to, uh, to New York City. Like having anybody else evaluate his effectiveness for the work that he was hoping to do in New York City. Like planning financially. Like he just had this feeling that God was calling him to New York City. So he sold everything that he had. He moved to New York City making no provisions for his wife or his children. And he put upon his wife the burden of working to support his family so that he could go out in the streets and preach the gospel. And let me just ask you, was this man led by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in New York City? I would argue the clear answer of Scripture is no. If it's violating clear principles of the will of God, then it's not God's will. 
regardless of what experience I may have had. And God says that a man who doesn't provide for his own family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. No matter how strong he may feel his calling is to violate a, a direct command in Scripture is to, go, is to follow a spirit that is not the Holy Spirit leading you in this direction. Uh, there was a running back a few years ago. Uh, his name was Adam Wema. He left the NFL scouting combine because God told, he said God told him to do so. And Moema said God told him that he would, if he left the combine, he would play for the Seattle Seahawks. That was his dream, uh, to play for the Seahawks. And, and, and he said, God told me to sit down, be quiet, and enjoy the peace. And one uh, reporter asked him after that, apparently amused with uh, his decision, inquired. And they said, when God talks to you, what does it sound like? To which Moema responded, it sounds like the Bible with a confirmation of a Holy Spirit chill down the crown of my head to my spine. And you could guess how this story ended. He was not drafted by the Seattle Seahawks. He has not played in the NFL. And today he's following a false prophet who claims to be the real Jesus. You see, the bottom line is this. Just because somebody feels led a certain way doesn't necessarily mean it's the will of God for them. It doesn't mean the Spirit's leading them in that way, regardless of how strong their story might be. And our feelings and our hunches and our experiences cannot always be trusted. But the Word of God can. The Word of God can always be trusted. And so it's to the Spirit's Word that we turn. And we must determine to turn, no matter, uh, no matter what the situation is when we're seeking to make wise, Spirit-led decisions. Um, so let's talk a little bit about decision-making in the Scriptures, particularly in the early church. I want to note a few things. We're, I'm just going to survey this. If you'd like more information on this, I can recommend an article that kind of surveys the whole book of Acts here and uh, gives examples of this afterwards. But um, I, I just want you to think about divine direction in the early church. In the book of Acts, which is written about the story of the early church over a 30-year period. All right, in the book of Acts, 16 times, 16 times, unless I'm miscounting, in the book of Acts, uh, we read about divine direction being given to disciples of Jesus. Now, you might be surprised, though, that uh, because not all of these examples uh, are of the kind of guidance that we often think of or we often have in mind. Um, two, for example, were, were related to instructions that were given before Pentecost. Um, two were involved in jailbreaks. Uh, two were at the Ethiopians' conversion, the Ethiopian eunuchs' conversion. Two at Saul's conversion, two at Cornelius' conversion. You might remember an, an angel of the Lord appearing to Cornelius, the spirit of the Lord driving um, Peter to Cornelius' house. Two were about Paul in Jerusalem, four were during Paul's missionary journeys. And there were different means through which God would speak to these people to direct them. Um, there were visions. Think about like the Macedonian vision that Paul had with somebody calling Paul over to come and preach the gospel in Macedonia. There was the Corinthian vision when Paul was in Corinth and he was starting to struggle and getting afraid. And the Lord said, appeared to him and said, don't be afraid. Uh, I have many people in the city. There were appearances of angels. Think about when Peter was in prison and the angel appeared to him and led him out of prison. Or think about uh, with Cornelius when the angel appeared and said, I have seen the Lord. The Lord has heard and heard your prayers and has seen the alms that you're giving. 
There were times where the Spirit spoke directly to people. When Philip was on that road, the Spirit spoke to him directly and said, hey, go up in the chariot and speak to this Ethiopian eunuch. Um, same uh, with uh, the church at Antioch. When the church at Antioch in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for this work that I've called them to. Um, and then there are cases also where Jesus spoke. Think about Saul on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, there are also cases, though, where there's no indication given exactly how that revelation or how that direction came uh, from the Lord. But I want you to note this. The receptors, the people who were receiving this divine direction, uh, included Paul and Barnabas, Peter, Philip, the apostles, Cornelius and Ananias. Notice that most of these uh, cases involve the apostles. There are also five times in the book of Acts where there's a, what I would call a divine interaction. And that is five times where either Jesus or the spirit or an angel spoke and revealed something directly without giving any specific instruction about what to do, without giving any specific direction about where to go or, or, or what to accomplish. Um, an example of that would be like in Acts 20, and verse 23, where the Holy Spirit told Paul that bonds and afflictions awaited him in every city. But let me just tell you this. If you read through the book of Acts, far more often in the book of Acts, what you're going to find is important decisions being made by the saints of God with no explicit divine direction given. So at least 70 important decisions were made in the book of Acts where there is no indication that the disciples received any explicit divine direction that led them to make these decisions. Do you understand what I'm saying there? At least 70 times in the book of Acts, we, they are noted of preaching, going places, um, choosing who to take with them on journeys, going on missionary journeys, appointing elders in churches and choosing to plant churches, calling meetings, giving up a job to focus on ministry. And they did all of these things according to the book of Acts without any indication of receiving explicit spiritual or divine direction. That is, they did these things without the Spirit explicitly telling them to do so. Now, just, I just want you to take a moment to reflect on that for a second. And, and at least we, could, we, could, we should be able to agree on this. It was not the normative way in the early church for disciples to wait for personal divine direction or confirmation before making decisions. That was not the normal way that they made decisions. When the early church decided to sacrifice and to give up their possession to provide for the poor who were around them and in need, there's no indication that they waited for the Holy Spirit to tell them to do that. Why? Well, they had already been instructed by Jesus to be givers, to take care of the poor, to provide for those in need. So they didn't need a personalized revelation to remind them of that. They already knew it from their devotion to the apostles' teaching. Over 30 years of history in the church, and we only have 20 or 21 references to personal divine revelation in the book of Acts. And most of those are given to the apostles who, bear in mind, did not yet have the New Testament. Did not yet have a New Testament to turn to for wisdom and, and, and for advice about how to proceed. Because most of it hadn't been written at this time. And here's what I want us to think about. Uh, while we wait for spirit-led feelings or hunches or for God to speak to us personally, we, we often end up wasting valuable time where we could be learning his will through his word. 
and simply living out his word in obedience to it. Why didn't they wait for the Holy Spirit before making all of these decisions? Because what the Spirit had already revealed to them was sufficient to lead them to make wise decisions that would please the Lord. Now, I realize that doesn't solve all of our troubles here. And, I, and so I want to talk for the rest of our time about how do we, as disciples today, make wise spiritual decisions? And I want to give you a few um, suggestions for keys to follow here. The first one we'll spend the most time on, and then the, the rest of them we'll, we'll move through a little bit more quickly. Um, how to make wise spiritual decisions. Number one, um, accept what is revealed and unrevealed concerning the will of God. Now listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Listen to what Moses says. He says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Do you get that? The secret things belong to the Lord. That is, there is some parts of God's will that is unrevealed to us. We have not received it. There are other parts of God's reveal, God's will that have been revealed. They belong to us. Well, why did God give those to us? So that we may follow all the words of this law. Notice that Moses is making a distinction, and there is in Scripture a clear distinction, a clear difference between God's revealed will, his decreed will, as we might call it, and his secret sovereign will, which is unrevealed. God's decreed will is what he has revealed to us in the Spirit's word about how we ought to live. Think about uh, the command, thou shalt not steal. This is part of God's decreed will. It is a command given from God. Now, if you come up to me after this lesson and say, hey, Caleb, um, you know, while you were speaking, I had a revelation from God. And the Spirit told me to take you out for some rice and peas after, after uh, we finish here. And we're going to ask for the food. And God told me not to pay for it. So we're going to go and we're going to eat it and we're going to leave and we're not going to pay for it. I can tell you, I don't have to pray about this. This is not God's will for you. Because God has directly decreed in Scripture, thou shalt not steal. So unless you're taking me to your house and you've already paid for the food at the store, it's not God's will for you to do that. If you come up to me and say, you know, I'm a single person and God is leading me. I know God is leading me to marry this unbeliever. I don't have to pray about that to know that I could say you're wrong about that. It's not God's will for you to do that. It doesn't matter if you have a chill down your spine every time he touches you. It doesn't matter if you can feel the magic in his fingertips. I don't have to pray about that because it's a violation of what God has revealed in his will in Scripture. And that should be sufficient for us. But then on the other hand, there's God's sovereign will. And this is the part that is hard for us because this, is the will, this will is often concealed from us. There are things about God's will that we do not know. But when we talk about God's sovereign will, his unrevealed will, this is what God allows to come to pass. And it can only be known after the fact. It could not be known in advance unless it, it was revealed through prophecy. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul reveals that the gift of prophecy would cease. And I realize there are disagreements about, over when that would exactly take place. I take the position, as, as most of you know uh, well in this church, I take the position that this gift has already ceased. And I've shared evidence for that conclusion in the past. I'm not going to do that again today. If you'd like to discuss that, though, we can. Um, 
But if 2020 has taught us anything, it was that many of the people who claim to be prophesying for God are speaking out of their own mouths. There are false prophets who have made all kinds of proclamations. And by biblical standards, the way to judge a prophet is whether or not their prophecies come true. And if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that many of these people who claim to be prophesying for God are false prophets because their prophecies are not coming true just as they promised. But what's hard for us about all this is that many of us want to know what is God's sovereign will. We're not satisfied with knowing the decreed will of God. We want to know his sovereign will and we want to know it in advance. And we spend a lot of time and effort trying to seek out the unrevealed will of God through extra biblical means. Sometimes we, do, we spend so much time seeking the unrevealed will of God that we end up neglecting the revealed will of God. Some people spend far more time seeking the unrevealed will of God through extra biblical means than they do actually learning the Bible and simply obeying what they know is revealed in the scripture. Note what James says. In, uh, in James chapter 4 and verse 14, so people are saying, hey, we're going to make plans. We're going to go we'll do this. we got business over here. We're going to do all that. Remember what James said to them? He said, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're like a mist, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, what you ought to say is, if it is the Lord's will, that is, if it is the Lord's sovereign will, because there are some things that we don't know. I may have plans to go and do this this week, but the Lord's plans are greater than mine. And the Lord may put a, throw a wrench in those plans that I have. We ought to say, if it's the Lord will, we will live and do this and that. James doesn't say, notice this, James doesn't say, don't plan, don't go, or wait for the Spirit to tell you exactly what to do. He says, plan, go, but realize that God is in control and realize that God's plans are far greater than yours. Proverbs 19, verse 20 and 21 says this, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are, in the, plan, are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Did you catch that? Many are the plans in the mind of a man. That is, we have lots of plans, but the only person's plans who will always stand are the Lord's, his sovereign plans. Now, this, this is comforting if you think about it, because you know what that means? If God has a specific job for you to take, you'll get it. He'll put you there. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to stress about it. He will put you there. If God's plan is for you to take the gospel to Sudan, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to end up there. Somehow the Lord is going to get you there to take the gospel to Sudan, whether you want to or not. This is God's sovereign will, and it is up far above us, and we do not control it. We don't have to worry about God's unrevealed will. Our job as disciples is to focus on learning his revealed will and to live in obedience to that. And while we do that, we can trust that God is taking care of his sovereign will and ensuring that. I, want to, I just want to press a little bit more into this, though, before we go further. Uh, why, why is it that it's so important to us? Why is it that we want so badly to know what God's unrevealed will is? And I think there's a few reasons for this. There's probably more than this, but let me just give you a couple of reasons. One is uh, we think if we know God's sovereign will in advance, it will be guaranteed free from trouble. Think about this. You know, we're buying a car, and you go out there, and you see three different models, same year, 
more or less the same uh, n number of miles, same condition, but they're different colors. And some people would want to know, which one is God's will for me to buy? You know, which one does God, is the Spirit leading me to buy? Um, if I, and I think the thought process behind it is, if, if I choose the right car, the one the Spirit's leading me, then it's going to run for eternity. <laughs> but I want you to think about this. You know, it might be God's will for you. It might be that the Spirit is leading you to have some great growth opportunities through buying a car that's messed up. It might be the Spirit's will for God to give you an opportunity to preach the gospel to every mechanic in Brooklyn as your car breaks down over and over and over again. You don't know that, right? But sometimes we think that we'll be guaranteed free from trouble. I think this is why we care so much about which person is the Spirit leading me to marry. Because we think, well, if I choose the right one, if I marry the right one, then everything's going to go smoothly. And you know what the problem is? Even if I marry the person who the Holy Spirit directly told me, this is the wife for you. You know what the problem is? If I'm not producing the fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to have a miserable marriage. I'm going to have a miserable marriage. So we think that, that somehow knowing God's sovereign will is going to free us from trouble. I, also, I think... If God made the decision, we think we're free from blame and responsibility for the consequences of it. You know, we're free from all the consequences if I can blame it on him in advance. You know, God spoke to me and he told me to uh, borrow $2 million. And if I can't pay it back, it's not my fault. God told me to do it. right? And, and what this actually does is, is it leads us sometimes to avoid the hard work of gathering all the facts and seeking God's will in his word and through prayer and through wise counselors to actually follow the Spirit's lead. It makes it, it's kind of the easy way out in some ways. If I could just seek a feeling or a hunch or something like that, it's a lot easier than doing the hard work of seeking wisdom to be able to make decisions. Uh, okay, so number one, accept what is revealed and unrevealed concerning the will of God. We'll move more quickly through the rest of these. Number two, understand the difference between when the Bible uh, is speaking directly and indirectly. So there are some places where God tells us explicitly what to do. Uh, for example, make disciples of all the nations. But God still leaves room for decisions and choices about which nation we're going to go to and preach to, right? Um, there's no evidence in the scripture that God told Philip he had to go to Samaria. But Philip chose to take the gospel to Samaria in obedience to this great commission. I don't think he was wrong for doing that. He knew that Jesus said take the gospel to all the nations. He knew that the gospel wasn't supposed to stay only in Jerusalem. So he went to one of the nations, the Samaritans, and he began preaching there. Sometimes the Spirit will give us an indirect principle which we can use to gain wisdom that will help us make decisions. For example, you know when uh, Abraham and Jacob tried to marry uh, two different women? It didn't work out very well. Maybe we should learn from that. Maybe what God really meant was uh, when he said marriage is, when, is designed so that two will become one flesh, maybe we shouldn't try for three or four. It's not going to work out very well. There are stories all throughout Scripture that, though they may not directly speak into your life, they teach you principles that should give you wisdom about how to make daily decisions. So there's three propositions to help, that, that help us use the scriptures to make decisions. Number one, there's no way to be certain uh, of the Holy Spirit's guidance apart from the scriptures. No way to be certain of the Holy Spirit's guidance apart from the scriptures. Number two, scriptural principles cover all areas of life. 
And number three, scriptures speak directly and indirectly by implication. That is, they're going to help us to make yes or no choices. Sometimes they will also give us a limited number of equally legitimate choices in which we just choose. So understand the difference between the Bible speaking directly and indirectly. Third thing here, um, how to make wise spiritual decisions. Accept what's revealed and what's unrevealed. Uh, understand the difference between Bible speaking directly and indirectly and learn to use it. And then thirdly, gather all the facts and weigh the costs and benefits in light of scriptural principles from the Spirit. So I want you to think about this. I'm trying to make a decision about which job to choose. Well, this job pays $40,000. This job, though, pays $60,000. I just got offered both of them. Well, what are the facts? How much time am I going to be working on this job? How much time am I going to be working on this job? Then you start to, as you get all those facts and you line them up, you start to weigh them out. What are the costs? What are the benefits? Now, some things... Before I seek the Spirit's guidance may seem like a plus. Like, hey, more money on this job may seem like a pro. But actually, when weighed with Scripture, it may be more of a con. That is, if, if I'm going to make twice the money that I would at this job, but I'm going to have to work all day, every day, and I'm never going to be able to spend any time with Christians, and I'm never going to be able to be with the Lord's people, and I'm never going to be able to be doing any other ministry for the Lord, well, maybe that's not a wise decision, even if it pays double. You see, we got to gather the facts and weigh those cost benefits in light of what the scriptures say. And so I got to go through scripture, and this is hard, but I got to go through scripture and say what principles are there in scripture that would apply to this, that would give me wisdom here to help me to make uh, a, a decision. Um, and I'll just add to that. We ought to be, as we're making those decisions, we ought to be praying that God will help us to see the scriptures clearly. And to understand what is wise and what is right. James chapter 1 and verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. That's a promise from God. If we ask, from, ask, for God, uh, ask from God for wisdom, and we do so with a pure heart, God will give it to us. He'll give it to us graciously. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. You see that? Where does, the, where does the wisdom and understanding come from? It comes from the Spirit. So Paul is praying for them to have wisdom and understanding that the Spirit will give them. And so, as we're gathering these facts and as we're applying the scriptures to what these facts are, we pray that God will help us to see the scriptures clearly. Number five, let me, let me add this. Uh, oftentimes, and I, I, I can't underestimate this enough, I can't underemphasize this enough, oftentimes, what we need to do as we're applying the scriptures to our decision, to weighing the facts and the cost, as we're praying, that ought to lead us to seek wise counsel. Think about these Proverbs for a moment. Listen to this. Proverbs 12 and verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 11 and verse 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Notice, not just one. Sometimes you go to one counselor and they say this, and you go to another counselor and they say that. And again, going to counselors doesn't always solve the issue. But in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. If I seek wise counsel 
And I find, and I find an abundance of counselors, the more I listen to other people who have wisdom from God, from the Spirit, the more I'm going to have the wisdom that I need to be able to make an informed and a godly and a Spirit-led decision. Proverbs 15, verse 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 13, verse 20, whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13, verse 10, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. If I want to become wise in how I make decisions, I need to learn to take advice. Proverbs 28, verse 26, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. See, the scriptures are clear about this. There is a need that all of us have for wise counsel. And so as we're weighing the pros and the cons, and as we're gathering facts, and as we're weighing those in light of scriptural principles, and we're praying to God for wisdom, it is also true that God has granted us all, people in our lives, who are wise counselors, who we can turn to for advice and weigh their counsel with what the scriptures actually say. Well, finally, even still, sometimes after doing all those things, you got a decision to make, and it's like, hey, I don't know which one to choose. They both seem like good options. If you've narrowed it down to two equally good decisions, let me just suggest this. God's will is for you to choose one. For you to choose one. And if you can't pick one, just call me uh, from the car lot or from the mall or from the dating parlor or wherever you are, and I'll pick for you. Um, you know? The fact that God would leave us with options in life is a good thing, right? The fact that God would give us the ability to choose is, is a good thing. And again, you know, let's say you're trying to choose an apartment or you're trying to choose a house. Some of those things are out of your range. You know, there are some apartments, some houses in Brooklyn um, that I just can't afford. Doesn't matter. I don't have to pray about it. I just know I can't afford it, so we're not going to live there. We're not going to be there. Um, but still, oftentimes there's more than one option inside the box. So, so what do I do next? Well, there are indirect statements in Scripture that may apply here. Like, if I'm choosing an apartment or a home, there is that Scripture that says, Husbands, dwell with your wife in an understanding way. Which I think would lead me to conclude that my, what my wife thinks about this should have some bearing on the decision. That is, I'm not making a decision about an apartment alone if I'm married. Um, I remember a few years back uh, when, when we first got married, I had a two-door Civic. And I remember it wasn't long before um, my wife started saying to me, hey, we really need to uh, move to a four-door. This is tough. We're carrying people in the car a lot. And you always got to get out every time, open the door, let them crawl out of the back. It was difficult. And I remember I didn't really listen to my wife very well. I was young and dumb at the time. Um, but eventually one of my older mentors, he was in his 80s, came up uh, to, to teach at the church. And, and he said to me, hey, Caleb, you really need to get a four-door. This, this is too small. This is hard on your wife. This is not easy. And, uh, and eventually I realized, wait a second. Like, hey, there's some other scripture here that should apply to this decision. Just because I don't think I need a four-door doesn't mean that... I shouldn't consider what my wife thinks about this and what my wife's needs are and her desires are. Let me just add on this. Sometimes when we're left with different choices, some people have the idea that God wants me to choose the one that will make me most miserable. All right? I don't know where that idea comes from. I think it's from a deceitful spirit, not from the Holy Spirit. But some people have the idea, you know, I just got to make the hardest decision. I got to put myself in the most difficult possible situation. There's no biblical scripture that teaches that. 
God wants me to pick the one I like the least is not a biblical idea. Um, Let me just say a word about marriage here. Could my wife have married someone else and been happy? I believe the answer to that question is yes. For all I know, this could be my last day on earth. And I would hope that if I was to pass away, that God would provide her someone else to be married to and to take care of her. There may be more than one biblically legitimate option in life. And we need to understand that. When I I thought about marriage, um, first thing to think about there is to take a biblical look at the single life. And some of you have done that and you said, well, the single life is not for me. Um, And others of you said, you know what? Maybe this is the best way for me to serve the Lord in my situation at this time. But even if you start to date, there are written standards from the Bible that you should adhere to while you're dating. And there are careful instructions given in Scripture that need to be considered. Finding biblical standards for a marriage partner. Um, I'll just say this. Many people stay single because of biblical standards for a mate that have kept them single. I'll also say this, though. uh, Many others stay single because of worldly standards or expectations that have kept them single. So many people are just attracted to a body. Just think about what he looks like or what she looks like, whether she's attractive to me physically or um, in, in some sort of way. There's a whole lot more that goes into marriage than that. You're not just choosing somebody you're going to go to sleep with, you're going to go to bed with, you're going to choose somebody you're going to wake up with and you're going to live with for the rest of your life, God willing, till death do we part. Uh, We need to evaluate when we're dating. We need to evaluate a person's sensitivity to biblical authority and influence and look for evidence of spiritual growth and obedience to God's word. In today's world, especially in this uh, society, uh, it's not enough for somebody to say that they're a Christian. Most people say they're Christian. There are people who claim to be Christians in this nation doing all kinds of horrific things. So I've got to examine how sensitive is this person to biblical authority and influence. And I'll just add to this, anybody who uh, plans to get married needs to go through some serious pre-marriage counseling. If what the Proverbs are saying is true, then none of us should enter into something that's going to affect me for the rest of my life without taking time to seek counsel. Our assumption is, um, it, when I, whenever it comes to Lindsay and I giving any kind of marriage counsel, our assumption is that God doesn't want you to be married. And, uh, and, and, and my thing is, you've got to prove me wrong on that. Right? Prove me wrong. Uh, and that's because, what is it, like 50% of marriages end in divorce? Most of those are done by pastors, right? We need to be careful here. I'm not going to marry a couple until they go through some serious premarital counseling. You have to give evidence that you're able to handle crises when they arise, that you can solve problems biblically. I heard one marriage counselor that said, uh, when a couple came to him, and he said, well, what pro- tell me about a problem that you've worked through. And they said, you know what? We just haven't had any problems. It's been great. The whole time we've dated, no problems whatsoever. He said, now you got one because I'm not going to marry you until you learn to work through problems. Um, I think that's wise. We are not getting married until we know how to handle challenges, hardships that are faced, and know how this person is going to react. Let me just say a couple of things in conclusion here as we wrap up. Uh, A lot of people have a misunderstanding here um, when it comes to God's will that I I need to be at peace in my heart. 
in, in order to know that the Spirit is leading me in a certain direction. I need to feel peace in my heart. Uh, I'll hear people quote things like Colossians 3 and verse 15. I'm just looking for the peace of Christ to rule in my heart. Well, I just want you to think about this. First of all, Colossians 3 and verse 15 is about corporate relationships in the body of Christ among members of the church. And I'll just say this. For some of us, God's will is anything but peaceful. It's hard. For some of us, God's will is going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. Peace comes on the back end, not on the front end of many difficult decisions that we have as disciples. Think about it in a confront, confrontation. Well, I'm just waiting to feel peace about this before confronting this brother or this sister who's in sin. You may never feel peace about that. Or church discipline. I, I had great peace in my heart about disciplining that brother or disciplining that sister. How many people feel that? There's no promise that we're going to always feel peace in our hearts. There is a promise that peace can come for all of us through knowing that Christ Jesus died for us. And that since we died with him and we were buried with him in baptism and we were raised up with him to walk in new life, all our sins are washed away. That is where our peace comes from. There is a knowledge that through Christ Jesus our Lord, since Jesus was raised from the dead, we have peace with God. Since I've died with him, I will also be raised up with him. And that's where our peace comes from. And it's that peace of knowing that we are saved by grace through faith that then strengthens us to take the knowledge that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord and through his precious blood that was shed for us. To take that knowledge and then to use it every day to make difficult decisions following the Spirit's lead. Letting the Spirit govern our minds and teach us how to make these daily decisions as we live for the glory of God. Hope this is helpful for you. I realize I've probably raised a whole lot more questions than I've answered with these, uh, with these studies. I want to encourage you to reach out. We'll discuss these more. Um, be happy to do that. But may God help us. May God help us to follow the Spirit's lead every day in every decision that we make. Let us pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for your word today, and thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides us and, uh, and, and reveals to us what your will is. We thank you for the scriptures, which have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we're sorry, Father, for how often in our daily decisions, even in the smallest decisions, but also sometimes in the big ones, that we just reject the Spirit's governing wisdom, the Spirit's counsel, what the Spirit has often explicitly stated in Scripture. And I pray, God, that you will forgive us, that you will uh, remove all impurities and evil from our hearts, that you will create within us a clean heart, O oh God, that you will renew within us a steadfast spirit, that you would not take your Holy Spirit from us, but that you would lead us in the way that you desire us to go. We need your guidance every hour of every day. So we pray earnestly, God, for wisdom. We pray earnestly, God, that you will guide us to have wisdom, discernment, knowledge, and understanding that we may in every decision follow the Spirit's lead and ultimately bring glory to your name. In Jesus we pray.